Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. Sonny Holder, my dear departed father, took me to the polls every time, every time that he cast a vote. It was like a man-son thing, you know? And so I've had ingrained in me the notion that the full measure of your citizenship is the ability to participate in our democracy. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are dot dot dot. In this show, we wrestle with the challenges. And the absurdities. Of a deeply divided and unequal country. Hey Amen. And ain't that the truth? Our democracy is on life support. And we're going to talk to the nation's leading democracy trauma surgeon, <laughs> Eric Holder, the former U.S. Attorney General, is with us to help us make sense of how deep this problem is and what to do about it. We're going to talk to him about his life leading up to his career in the Obama administration mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and everything mm -hmm. he's done since. Yep. And all of the work that he's done after leaving office to strengthen our democracy, a lot of that work has paid off in the midterm election. So we're going to learn a lot more about it. Yeah, he has been protecting voting rights. He's been fighting for fair elections. He has been working to uphold our democracy. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Let's do it. So first of all, what should we call you? Should we call you Attorney General Holder? Can we call you Eric? What do you prefer? Eric is fine. I mean, I've been called a lot worse than that. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. We absolutely love that. I've actually heard another nickname of yours. Uh, 
<laughs> so uh -oh. I don't I, uh -oh. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, uh, but we were uh, in a meeting uh, trying to figure out how to sort of prepare for the 2016 election. It was one of these closed door meetings where none of us are supposed to talk about what happened in the meeting. But there was, you know, Harry Belafonte was there and Reverend Barber joined in remotely and there were a whole bunch of other folks in the room. And at some point, someone in the room was talking about the Democratic you know, get out the vote machine and really kind of frustrated by how it just shows up, you know, for midterms, it shows up for the presidential race, but everyone packs up their consulting briefcases and moves on. And the question was directed to you and, it's, <laughs> and they said, hey, you know, you, you're like the highest ranking official in this room from the past administration, you know, you're somebody who can help us understand why the Democratic Party won't change. And you said, hey, man, I'm just little Ricky from 145th Street. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you and your great memory, Khalil. Yes, that would be right. That would be little Ricky Holder from 101st Street. In, 101st in Queen. Street. Although 147th and 8th in Harlem. So that, the two places, you know? <laughs> yeah, so I and, I and I love the moment when... <laughs> <laughs> when when Mr. Belafonte, Mr. B uh, leaned over who was sitting next to you and he said, well, you were the man, <laughs> as if to remind you that you did actually have some power in that moment. You weren't just little Ricky. So we won't call you little Ricky, but Eric works. Yeah, little Ricky grew up to be Eric Holder and uh, little Ricky, that, that, you know, that's fine. Ricky Holder, that, that's, that's cool. But uh, <laughs> Eric will work just fine. Okay. All right. And, and we actually had a, a question out of that. Who was Little Ricky? Meaning, like, we want to know who you were as a kid growing up in, in Queens. Well, I tell you, it was interesting. I was a kid who just grew up in a, what was a, an immigrant neighborhood, although the immigrants at that point were folks who had moved up from the south to the north. Mm -hmm. It was an all-black neighborhood. It's actually a neighborhood that was in transition when I was extremely young. Italian folks were moving out. Black Americans were moving in. East Elmhurst in Queens is one of the most stable neighborhoods in the city. I once read that if you look at all the zip codes, we're 11369. It's the place we have the least amount of movement. And it was also a neighborhood that was peopled with, you know, really with celebrities. It was a real hotbed of Black achievement. But it was interesting also because up until fourth grade, I was at PS 127, all Black school. And then as part of some, I guess it was called IGC program, Intellectually Gifted Children, they moved me to um, PS 148, and that was a predominantly Jewish school. Mm. And so I had, little Ricky Holder, my feet in two worlds, a, <laughs> a war world that was predominantly Jewish and a world that was predominantly African-American. But I think it was, in some ways, something that prepared me for the duality that I was going to have to face as an adult. Wow. So so what you're saying is your coming of age was like being encapsulated in our podcast, a black guy yeah. and a Jewish guy trying to make sense <laughs> of race in, the, in America. That's amazing. That's amazing. If you guys have any problems interacting with one another, I can be <laughs> the interpreter here to explain what's happening from the Jewish perspective as well as from the African-American. Man, we might, this might be a long interview. We might be on all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wanted to follow up on all, all that greatest hits of Black excellence. I mean, so just take us back just a little bit to your own consciousness being immersed in that neighborhood at the time. Well, you know, it's interesting, Khalil. I mean, I, I saw a, a full range of accomplished, you know, striving Black men. And that went from everybody from uh, Mr. Gachet, who was my Little League coach and who was a custodian 
for a building in Manhattan. Also, Dr. Scott, two blocks over, was a radiologist. So there was Mr. Archer down the block was a lawyer. I mean, we were all packed together. And I saw the full panoply hmm. of, um, you know, black men um, and to a lesser extent, African-American women, because a lot of them were, you know, working in the home. Um, but a, a full range of black, I guess, involvement, activity. And, and the thing was, no matter what your station, for lack of a better term, was, um, everybody had pride mm -hmm. in themselves. Mm -hmm. Everybody thought that they were working to make it better for the next generation. We were cognizant of the fact that, you know, Louis Armstrong was around the block, that Malcolm X was around the block, that Willie Mays was, you know, pretty close by. But it wasn't as if we were starstruck. They were just part of the neighborhood. I mean, one interesting story. I'm at a, a candy store um, run by a Jewish guy, 23rd okay. Avenue and 97th Street, a guy named Mo. And I'm getting some candy, whatever. My brother comes flying in and says, Cassius Clay is in front of Malcolm X's house. Now, this is after <laughs> the first listen fight and before he formally becomes Muhammad Ali. Yes. All right. So I'm like, yeah, right. And he said, no, it's true. It's true. So I walk down there. Everybody else is running. I walk down there. And in fact, he's out there in front of Malcolm X's house and he's signing autographs. Wow. And I, skinny little, you know, I guess maybe 12 year old <laughs> holder, and always kind of a bit of a smart ass, I said to him, if people might not remember, in the weigh in before the Liston fight, his blood pressure was really high. People said he was scared. Mm. And so I said, hey, were you scared before the fight? And this is, he's the largest human being I'd ever seen. So he's like six, two, six, three. I'm like five, something or other. And he balls up his fist and very slowly extends it and puts it in my face and says, what do you think? Uh oh, <laughs> wow. I said, no, you know, and um, he signed an autograph for me on a, I had a bag and I pulled a piece of the bag and he signed Cassius Clay on the bag, kept it forever. And my mother in one of her periodic cleanings threw out my autograph book. So oh, um, my brother, I think, still has his, but I don't have mine. You don't need an autograph. You have this on the podcast. That's that's forever. There we go. Yeah. There we go. So, so Eric, one more follow up about this, which is so much of your work is about civil rights. And so how does all of this growing up and growing up in the 1960s lead you to civil rights work? Well, you know, it's interesting because I always saw possibilities, you know, um, growing up in East Elmhurst. Again, that range of people doing a variety of things, all with a great deal of pride. But also I'm growing up in the 60s where African countries are gaining their independence. Hmm. Um, my folks are from Barbados. Caribbean countries are gaining their independence. And the civil rights movement is in, you know, in full bloom. And so as a northerner, I'm watching to see what's going on in, in Birmingham. My future sister-in-law is integrating the University of Alabama with the George wow. Wallace stand in the schoolhouse door. Mm -hmm. And so all of this stuff is brewing in me. And this notion of Black pride, Black accomplishment, the notion of independence, mm -hmm. uh, the notion of throwing off that which was old and creating something new. All of that is in me and has stayed with me, you know, ever since. You know, they say as you get older, you're supposed to get, I guess, more conservative. I'm 71 now, mm -hmm. and I suspect I'm more hmm. progressive, liberal, <laughs> radical now than I was when I was, you know, 15. Uh-oh. Well, you're on the right show. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have a new book out called Our Unfinished March. And we've read your book. And one of the things that you tell in this book is how in the midst of the civil rights movement, at its height, you are watching John Lewis cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965. 
Tell us about that moment and why it became sort of a turning point in your own life story. You know, I don't see it live because I'm watching from a black and white TV in the basement in Queens, but I see the newsreels of- You're like 14 at this point? Yeah, I'm 14. Okay. And I see the newsreels of him crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the march for, you know, from Selma to, to Montgomery for voting rights. People tend to forget that it was for voting rights. Mm -hmm. And then to see these Alabama state troopers attack these people and to see this guy who left an impression to me from the 1963 March on Washington, I remember thinking he was kind of young. You know, I, you know, I don't remember, didn't remember the speech as much as I remember. He just seemed, seemed young of all the speakers who I remember watching again on, on television. And to see him getting beaten, um, that for me was kind of like, well, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? These guys are mm -hmm. marching for a right that I know we have up here in the North. And to see these folks marching to do that, which we do as a matter of routine, and then getting beaten for it, that made me understand in a way that perhaps I had not before, that there was a dual existence for African-Americans in, um, mm -hmm. in, in the United States. But the John Lewis thing, for some reason, really melded in my mind, welded into my mind, the, the notion that um, there was a battle to be had, there was a fight to be won. And, and specifically over voting rights, like were you conscious that that was where the, the, the fight was being had? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's something that I knew at the time, you know, I mean, you know, 64, you have Cheney, Schwerner and Goodman dying. And I knew for whatever reason that they were down there to register people to vote. John Lewis is marching to get people to vote. And so voting is something that really gets seared into my consciousness and has, always, has really kind of been a focal point of my um, professional life. And, and do, you, do you go into the law with, with that idea in mind, that that's how you want to, to, use, uh, to use the law for, for these fights? So, no, I got to tell the truth here. I mean, I tried to craft a, a black studies you know, major that mm -hmm. did not exist at Columbia. And so I took all the courses I could and came up with this thing. And I, they said, well, yeah, that looks like American history. So you're an American history major. And I get out and I'm thinking, all right, now what do I do? And people say, well, you could teach. And I was thinking, <laughs> boy, I don't want to foist myself on the, you know, the, this next generation of Americans. That would be irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Let's not do that. And somebody said, well, you know, if you go to law school, you can do a lot with a legal degree. <laughs> so I thought of law school as kind of the haven for the undecided. Okay. And so I go to law <laughs> school and something clicked. First year, criminal law. I had a professor named Telford Taylor who had been a Nuremberg prosecutor. And something about him and about the way he taught the course and the way he talked about the law mm -hmm. made, me made me decide that I wanted to be um, a lawyer um, and to use the law and my skills as a lawyer to kind of help advance the cause, uh, kind of a diffuse notion of you know, advancing the cause. I mean, when I was a uh, freshman at Columbia, we took over the Naval ROTC office and converted it into what is still there, the, the Malcolm X Lounge, um, a place where black students um, could, could gather. And so I was a bit of an activist and I thought that I could be, use my legal skills in some kind of undefined way to further, further the cause. So Eric, you go on to become the first black U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia and then go on to be the nation's first black attorney general under President Obama. And we'll talk more about that legacy after the break. But there was a moment when your career was going to be the basis for a TV show. <laughs> One of our actual best friends is Sasha Penn, the screenwriter, whom you were working with on a TV show based on your career and life. What is a TV show about the first black attorney general? What, what is it about? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, Sasha is an unbelievably talented writer. And 
It was a great show. It was going to mm-hmm. be called Main Justice, and it was about this first African American yes. AG Attorney General. And it, we were going to explore, you know, what it meant to be that person, and you know, trying to be black and to be a person consistent with all that helped define you, while at the same time being the chief law enforcement officer of the country and to try to understand that there were political pressures, that you had to, you know, make some difficult choices in a lot of ways, just kind of, you know, based on what my experience was as the first black um, AG. It went to pilot, scored pretty well. And for whatever reason, CBS decided not to put it on the air. So I've got this like CD or DVD (laughs) of this great show it ought to be on TV. Maybe we'll get to HBO yeah. or something like that. But um, they couldn't. They couldn't great. handle the truth, Eric. <laughs> they right. weren't you ready for you. They the weren't truth. ready for you. Well, we are going to take a break now, and uh, when we come back, we are going to talk to you about what you've been up to since you've left that incredible office as the first Black Attorney General for the United States. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Well, Eric, it's been great really hearing the trajectory going from Elmhurst, Queens and having a neighbor as Malcolm X and being inspired by so many people of the civil rights generation. And now you yourself are making history. You have been working uh, against the tide of history in this moment to deal with this issue of voter suppression. And you've been working with this organization, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. So tell us what you've been working on. Tell us how this works. Yeah, the NDRC, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, the, the NDRC was formed up in um, January of 2017. And what we wanted to do was to try to come up with a way in which the redistricting process, which happens every 10 years after the census, when we draw the, the lines and that decides you know, what the districts are going to look like at the state legislature, uh, in state legislatures, as well as in um, you know, the United States House of Representatives, to do that in a fair way. Republicans had really gerrymandered in 2011. A study at Princeton University said it was the worst gerrymandering of the past 50 years. And we said, you know, if we just make this fair, progressives, Democrats, we'll do just fine, as long as it is fair. This is kind of simple, Eric, but could you just define what gerrymandering is? Yeah, gerrymandering is is the drawing of district lines in such a way that you guarantee, almost guarantee, that the party that draws the lines, that their candidate will win. And, and so you end up with people who are in these elected positions who don't fear a general election because they know they're going to win that. The only thing they worry about is getting primaried. You know, there's a whole range of things. And now we have seen as a result of the Dobbs decision, we've seen these gerrymandered state legislatures use the power that they have to put in place these anti-choice laws that are inconsistent with the desires of the people in the states where these mm -hmm. things are being passed. But they can pass these bills, even though, again, every state that's done a poll, every state has said, we don't want Roe versus Wade overturned. Now the margins are different in New York they, than, say, in Texas. But they can put in place these anti-choice laws, these draconian anti-choice laws, and not fear any electoral consequence because they're in these gerrymandered state legislatures. And so that's what we were, um, that's what we've been fighting, in addition to fighting voter suppression and the attacks on our um, electoral infrastructure. While your attorney general, Shelby County, Alabama, has this lawsuit to weaken the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and it goes to the Supreme Court, and there's a decision that actually does weaken the act. Is this where your inspiration to do this kind of work comes from? Were you already thinking about working on voting rights? No, it's interesting. Uh, I, I knew that working to protect voting rights was going to be within the range of those things that I was really going to have to focus on as AG, and that was fine. But after the Shelby County decision in 2013, it becomes critically clear that I'm going to have to use the power, what remains of the power that the Justice Department has, to try to get at what the states almost immediately did after the Shelby County case, which is one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in history. It's a 5-4 decision where Chief Justice Roberts says America has changed. And as a result of that, um, you know, we don't need to have in the full force that we now have the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is the pearl of the, um, you know, the jewel, crown jewel of the civil rights movement. Almost immediately, states put in place these unnecessary photo ID laws, 1,700 polling places have been closed around the country since the Shelby County decision. Unnecessary voter purges ha mm -hmm. have occurred, all of which would have been stopped before the Shelby County case by the Justice Department in those covered jurisdictions because the Justice Department had the ability to look at any change in an electoral system and say, you can't do that. But after Shelby County, Justice Department did not have, uh, did not have that power. And so 
it became clear 2013 on that voting rights had to be a, a primary um, focus of my time at the department. And I, you know, it is, again, so after I leave the department, what I said in my closing speech was I'm leaving the department, but I'll never leave the work. Mm. And what I meant by that is I'm never going to leave the work to protect our democracy generally and to protect the right to vote more um, specifically. Yeah. Now, since it's just us here, I mean, it's just Eric and Ben and Khalil. What you what you really want to say is that they mess with the wrong brother from Queens. Since your name is on that Supreme Court decision, Shelby versus Holder, you said, "Okay, I'll be back, but I won't be back here as AG. I'm going to be back here with a cape (laughs) and an S underneath my my sweater, and I'm ready to bring the fight to the people. You can't mess with Sonny Holder's boy. (laughs) Try me. So we just had a midterm. I mean, Ben and I are still learning from exit poll research uh, and results uh, in the newspapers what happened and why one outcome went one way and another. Obviously, the degree to which the Democrats retained control of the Senate uh, but lost the House is a is a sort of mixed outcome. But I'm really curious, as a native New Yorker, to what degree do you see that in New York and in the nation, your own work over these past several years having led to a good outcome? Is it a mixed outcome for you? How do you weigh the results of the 2022 midterm elections? Yeah, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the 2022 midterm or, or, um, midterms are a validation of the work that we did. We have seen, you know, the flip of state legislative chambers in um, Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, you know, trifecta control for Democrats for the first time in 40 years in, um, in, in Michigan, much more fair voting in Pennsylvania, uh, Virginia, North Carolina. So lots of lots of pluses. So. I'd say overall, it was a good night. It was a good midterm that, uh, as I said, validated a lot of the work that we did. New York is an interesting case. You know, mm-hmm. um, initially, a lot of people said, well, you know, it's because of the redistricting that was done inappropriately, overreached by um, New York Democrats. And then, uh, you know, the court drew the lines in such a way that were unfair. At least as, as we looked at kind of the data here, the places where Democrats lost in New York were pro-Biden districts by a variety of things, 2% to 5%. And so something else was going on there as to why, you know, Democrats lost. I think the crime, you know, measures or the crime arguments, the Republicans- The rhetoric, the fear mongering, yeah. Yeah, really kind of resonated for whatever reason in, in New York in a way that did not resonate in similar kinds of suburban districts in other states. And mm-hmm. so I think more study, I think is going to have to be is going to have to be done. But it wasn't the redistricting, I think, that cost Democrats critically, you know, four or five seats in New York. It was something else. Eric, as you're saying, it was a good night that the election day, the election was a a good night. You're wearing two hats, I I sort of hear you say, like one is a a Democratic stalwart. And you're saying like how Democrats did, but you're also talking about, was it fair? And Mm -hmm. were, were, were there problems with the vote? And those seem, those could be aligned, but they don't necessarily have to be. You know, it's interesting, Ben, that you say that, because I actually think that I'm not I'm, I'm wearing one hat because the reality is, although, yeah, I'm a Democrat and proud of that. One party has made the determination in our system. And let's just be fair. Let's be, you know, be accurate about this. One party stands for Democratic, small d, Democratic principles, you know, pro-democracy. Another party, because of the demographic changes that it faces, the ideological, ideological shifts that I think the nation is, is undergoing, They've made peace with the notion that they can be, in terms of popular support, a minority party 
that has majority power. And so they do a whole range of things, racial and partisan gerrymandering, uh, making it more difficult for people to vote, suppressing um, the vote. And so when I say we had a good night, what I meant by that, and let me make this clear to everybody, I meant that democracy had a good night. Now, that also meant that Democrats had um, a good night because Republicans or too much of the Republican Party has kind of turned its back on that which when we are, say we are exceptional, the thing that makes us exceptional is the fact that we let the people decide. Um, we've been an imperfect nation. You know, we're better than we were 50 years ago and better than 50 years before, but we're still not at the place where we need to be. But I'm really worried about where the Republican Party is headed. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things that I think is really interesting about this moment, because, you know, you have given speeches about and you've written in your book about the history that helps inform how we Americans ought to think about democracy as sacrosanct, as non-negotiable. And yet, I think it's fair, Eric, to say that America didn't actually deliver democracy to all of its people until 1965, right. in which case we're talking about more than or, or just shy of uh, essentially 200 years of a country whose so-called liberal democracy was not for everyone. And I'm wondering, how do you navigate the sort of tide of history and the need to actually make these changes, in a sense, wouldn't we have to become a different nation <laughs> legislatively and by structure, by political structure, by the very reforms you propose would actually change the bones of this country in order to maintain the post-1965 multiracial democracy? You know, the demographic changes are baked into this nation. We are going to be a, you, we say 2050, we will have more people of color than, than, than white folks in this nation now that's been moved up to 2043. The last I looked might even be you know, earlier than that now. And so those demographic changes can be a source of great strength for this nation, or mm -hmm. they can be unbelievably divisive. And, you know, uh, Donald Trump has tried to use those demographic changes to instill fear and to gain, um, you know, political control. And so we've got to look at the structure of our nation. And yeah, it was groundbreaking and, and, and wonderful 250 years or so ago, but it was flawed. And the first group of people who fought for yeah. the right to vote were white men. Mm -hmm. In the Jacksonian era, yep. Who didn't own property. While the founders are in the process of putting this thing called America together, they consider a couple, they consider one thing, one, somebody says, well, what, we should let all white men vote. And, well, no, not only with property. And when somebody, one of the founders says, well, wait a minute, if you give white men without property the right to vote, they don't have the intellectual capacity, they'll be able to be bought off. And interestingly says, if you give them the right to vote, other groups are going to ask for the right to vote, including, oh, hold on to it now, women. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, as that founding father predicted, other groups over time have um, sought that uh, that right to vote. But we need to make structural changes. I mean, yeah, it was great 250 years or so ago. You know, the Senate, two um, senators for every um, state, part of the, you know, the great compromise. So Wyoming's got two with less people than Washington, D.C., a sticking yeah. point for me. Um, and California <laughs> with over 30 million people, you know, ha has two. We've allowed the filibuster to render the Senate to, to be a place that, just doesn't function well. Supreme Court life tenure sounded great when people lived, you know, much shorter lives. And people left the court in the early parts of our uh, our country when they died. Now yeah. people 
do these strategic retirements. And this is Democrats as well as Republicans. You know, they leave when they decide that they're going to have a president who will appoint somebody like them. And we put people on the court when they're like in their late 40s, early 50s, and with the hope that they'll serve 40, 50 years. That's too much time for somebody to have that much power. Yeah, you're proposing now that it'd be 18-year terms. And I've, I've read this and, and heard it amongst some of my colleagues who are law professors that 18-year term limited. I think actually uh, the former Justice Breyer has recently come out also in favor of term limited Supreme Court appointments. You know, it's one of the rare places that Chief Justice Roberts and I agree. He says term limits of 15 years. I say 18 because I also think that a president should appoint a Supreme Court justice in his or her first year as well as his or her third year of an administration. So a president would be guaranteed two uh, Supreme Court appointments um, every term. And if you have them at 18 years over time, that will expand the court in the short term. But over time, the court will come back to nine members. And just to close the loop on this point, I think, I mean, this tension between fairness and what's in the interest of the Democratic Party, which is often the main talking point of the Fox News and conservative ecosystem. I mean, all these reforms are really just to put more Democrats in power, fundamentally turns on a rejection of the notion, as was true in the founding generation, that people who are taxed and who have obligations to the state should also have the right to vote, period, hard stop end of story. And we'll let the uh, electoral outcomes of their participation, let the chips fall where they may. So yeah. it's not fundamentally fair that Puerto Rico has essentially been treated as a stepchild in our democratic system of government, and most certainly true for the residents of Washington, D.C. I mean, that's your point. Yeah. And Khalil, you make a really good point there, because I think the reality is that it's, it's a telling thing about where the conservative movement is right now, where the Republican Party is right now, that when you stand for things that looked at, I think, objectively, are just all about fairness, injecting fairness into the system, they deem that partisan. Right. Well, I, you know, people ought to have the right to vote. We should have more polling places. We should reduce the number, the amount of time it takes for a person um, to vote. We should make it easy for people to vote by letting people vote by mail. Right. Um, you know, have early voting hours and people, oh, that's, you know, you're favoring Democrats. No, I'm, I'm favoring <laughs> the American people. Now, it may mean that more, I don't know, Democrats will, maybe Democrats win, maybe Democrats will lose. I don't really care as long as the system is fair. We are here with the amazing Eric Holder, Sonny's kid, <laughs> and we will be back after a short break to talk about a more perfect future. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. 
Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So one of the things I'm struck by, uh, Eric, is that there's this chicken and egg problem, meaning that in order to get to these reforms like automatic voter registration, like reforming the use of the filibuster by getting rid of it, by dealing with Supreme Court term limits, all of these are in the end legislative reforms. You'll have to get voters to support passing this legislation. And as a Ben and I being Gen Xers, you know, we are keenly aware that for our generation that's been written out of the history books as having accomplished nothing, <laughs> like the first generation of post-civil writers, right? Like your generation, Eric, you know, you guys took the reins of, of power. You were the first to show up in, in all parts of American society. And then your kids, us, ultimately just sat on our hands and enjoyed the fruits of all that labor. <laughs> now, of course... With this podcast, we are trying to make up for lost time. <laughs> but <laughs> That's totally unfair. I mean, because the reality is that your generation has accomplished a great deal. You know? Thank you. No, that, I mean, that's really true. And, and the notion that somehow or other, you know, boomers did all these wonderful things and then nothing has happened. I mean, you know, that which the generation before me um, put in place or started and that we've tried to keep going your generation has done its part to do, um, you know, as we did. And you don't, you don't get nearly the, the credit um, that you deserve. You know, you guys are still young and malleable and yeah. we need to you know, bring you over to the democracy side. You know, I love it. I love it. I'm ready. I signed me up. But on this point. So so we are talking about a generational divide and it's not it's not not an issue. Right. Because, as you well know, in John Lewis's day, 
when he decided to leave Troy, Alabama, to leave his parents, who were farmers, uh, to make his way to Fisk University and sit at the, the foot of Jim Lawson and learn about the nonviolent movement, he broke from his parents. They did not send him out there to make sacrifice, to, to change the world. And it seems to me, just from my perspective, that we are still living with generational tensions between young black activists who are engaging in racial justice movements right now on the ground. Some of them are teenagers. Some of them are like Latasha Brown, who is organizing in Alabama and really nationally for Black Voters Matter. How do you make sense of today's generational divide between a baby boom generation that's still active, still doing things, and even how we sort of hold up people like John Lewis as an avatar for change when there are people today doing this work? This generational tension it certainly exists, and we, but we can make more of it than it actually is. I mean, I look at these young people today, and they remind me of me. I'm the guy, you know, at that age who was taken over the Naval ROTC office to come up with a black lounge, you know. Attention's mm. good because young people are the ones least beat down by the experiences that you acquire over time. And it, it's almost inevitable, you know, as, as you age. They are the most optimistic. They are the ones who are physically, you know, most capable. Um, and, and so the question is, how do you harness that energy with the knowledge that um, that older folks have, um, you know, as Richard Pryor used to always say, you don't see many old fools. Um, mm. You know, when you get to be old, you've been able to navigate at least at a minimum. You know, keep yourself alive. Um, and so, getting that that experiential base along with that that youthful fervor, yeah. that is the way in which, you know, the movement at the end of the day will be most successful. Now, it means that people have to, again, keep their eyes on the prize. And we can argue about tactics and we'll, you have to compromise around tactics, but you never compromise about what our ultimate goals are. I want to stay on this a minute longer because this is fascinating. You talked about being entering your 70s and feeling as progressive as you were or more so than even when you were at 15. Certainly a problem for the Democratic Party is what we're describing here, that the the leadership is older and more centrist and the younger people are are much further to the left on mm -hmm. actual policy, on the prize, not just on tactics, but like what we're supposed to achieve. And so I don't think we can just sort of say like we're all, you know, this is a good tension because it's also the rifts that, that um, you know, we might have strategies to win elections, but we're not even sure what exactly we stand for. It's a tension that on one hand leads some young voters to not vote because they feel like they're not being captured in the party itself in responding to their political vision of the future. And also those young people have been scapegoated by Republicans and the right as terrorists who want to change America, who who literally are the, the thing that Republican voters have to do everything in their power to keep from voting. Otherwise, they would change America. And then Democrats run away, centrist Democrats run away from them, from the youth, yeah. from the, those charges. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, I think if you look at Democrats writ large and say, are you concerned about things that animate and move, I think, young people. You know, are you concerned about climate? They'd all say yes. Are you concerned about a woman's right to choose? They'd all say yes. Criminal justice reform, yeah. You know, protecting the right to vote, yeah. So everybody's, I think, in, in the same place when it comes to 
those things that are that matter. The, the, the question that I think that separates the generations is so what is it that we do to get to the place where we are dealing effectively with climate? And so, you know, you have something, the New Green Deal, mm-hmm. which has been totally yeah. misconstrued. And aligned, um, yes, as a maligned. socialist package to destroy America. Right. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, Fox talks about, oh, the New Green Deal. They don't have any idea what the New Green Deal is about, other than it's just a good talking point to scare people, you know? And unfortunately, yeah. too many uh, Democrats, you know, get scared, mm-hmm. you know, by, by these attacks from the right. The reality is, is that I think the movement and the party are most successful when yes. you stand up yes. for what it is you truly believe, mm-hmm. when, you know, it's like, don't cut corners. Don't try to be Republican light, conservative light. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work. You know, um, we are most successful when we stand up and say, look, you know, yeah, I- I'm for climate change and call it the new green deal in, in the same way that, you know, I'm proud of, to be a member of the party that started you know, social security, the, the, you know, the new deal and, That's right. and Medicare and Medicaid and the Civil Rights Act of 1965, you know, and the, the Affordable Care Act. That's who we are uh, as progressives and as Democrats. And to really, you know, interact with the people of this country and, and counter a narrative. I mean, don't be, you know, you know look, we got to be as tough as they are as creative as they are. I mean, hell, we're smarter than they are. <laughs> There's no question about that. <laughs> they, they have mastered the art of the big lie. And so mm-hmm. we have got to be effective in pushing back against it. And that means that, you know, some older Democrats, I don't know, centrist Democrats um, have got to ask themselves, you know, you claim to be a Democrat, uh, you know, understand what that means in a historical context and how do you apply that historical context to the, the present day issues that we confront? Yeah. So in keeping with the theme, A More Perfect Future, I'm also struck by this tension in your own journey as a public figure about balancing hope and honesty. I mean, in part, that's what we've been talking about here. And the sort of narrative strategies of the Democratic Party have probably leaned a lot more on unity and hope and a little bit less on the honesty of what our policies need to be and what it needs to be to run on your values in a way that you don't run away from them. And something in your book really jumped off the page at me in in 2013 on that anniversary of the Selma March. And you describe being there and giving a speech in Selma. You say that just as you were about to close the speech that you decided to end on a hopeful note when you knew there would be irreparable harm done by the Supreme Court. And as someone who I've admired in your role for your use of your platform, I mean, you opened essentially your term as attorney general, giving an internal speech to the DOJ where you in the end describe the nation as a nation of cowards for being unwilling to confront its racial past and to deal with those legacy effects today. In closing, just help us think about how you balance this tension between the hopeful aspirational rhetoric of what the past teaches us and what we're capable of overcoming and the honesty that is required that typically our young people are a little bit more on the honesty side of the equation than than the hopeful side. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think what you've, you're tapping into there is like, what's leadership about? How do you share honesty, which can be daunting, 
um, mm -hmm. and can be action defeating. Um, how do you combine that with inspiring people to be engaged, even when the odds seem, you know, set against you? You know, in, in 2013, yeah, I, I understand what's going to happen and what states are going to do with this new freedom that the Supreme Court has inappropriately given to them. But I want people to to leave that church with the sense that whatever it is that we're going to have to confront, history tells us in this space that every generation of Americans has met challenges to democracy and that this generation can't be the first that does not. You know, whether it is threats from outside the country, you know, Nazis or threats from within, you know, white supremacists and, you know, other structural inequalities that are baked into the system. You know, we have every generation has expanded the franchise, um, tried to protect um, our democracy and that this generation can't be the one. Um, this can't be the time where we are not successful in that defense of an expansion of, um, of democracy. So it's, 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 it's melding that honesty with that notion of, of, of hope. Eric, so I mean, since that moment in 2013, have you changed? I mean, you're talking about different kinds of leadership and, and here you've written this book and the work you're doing, you're much more direct in, in addressing the, the hard truths, the problems. Is this a time for a different kind of leadership for for calling out the problems and focusing on them? Using the Khalil, you know, equation there, I think <laughs> it's a time to dial up to a greater degree of the honesty, honesty, the honesty mm -hmm. component, um, because I think people need to understand what's at stake. Mm. Um, you know, and I don't mean to scare people, but I mean the reality is that you know you look at what happened in Europe in the uh, in the twentieth century. Yeah. You know, fascism rose. Not because fascism was strong, but because the defense of democracy was weak. Mm. And it doesn't mean that we'll have a dictator here in the United States, but you could render meaningless our elections every two years, every four years, every six years, unless we are willing to stand up for our democracy. You know, again, we had a pretty good night a couple of two days ago. All the election deniers who ran for secretary of state, a, a, you know, a position that people never focused on before, all of them were were defeated. That's important. A lot of election deniers were defeated at a whole range of levels, but some did win at the local level. And so we got to be concerned about that. And what it is that they would do with that power is shown by what they tried to do on January the 6th. That wasn't, you know, we talk about insurrection and, and people are well, I'm sure an insurrection. That was a coup attempt. Yes. That was an attempt to decapitate um, our democracy, to stop the, and they, the peaceful transfer of power. Drop peaceful, to just stop the transfer of power. Mm -hmm. You know, that was an attempt yeah. to somehow stop the American people from having their voices heard and deciding who the next president of the United States was going to be. I mean, they were all about doing things that we see happen or have seen happen, you know, in other countries. And because it happened in other countries, it can happen here. That's right. Democracy yeah. is a fragile thing. And if we don't fight for it, we can lose it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to end this conversation with your own words, uh, which I think are a taste of that honesty. And for those who haven't had a chance to read the book, you can pick it up and read it yourself. You, you say, we are in the middle of a crisis. You say, now anyone who tells you progress is inevitable is mistaken. Demography is not destiny. Moral arcs don't bend with certainty. History is not a Marvel movie. The good guys lose as often as they win. And so we have to fight for the things that matter. 
Thank you so much, Eric Holder, little Ricky, son of Sonny Holder, not to be confused with Sonny Liston. <laughs> we, are, we, we are really grateful uh, that you took some time to join us on Some of My Best Friends Are. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks for having me, Cleo. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much, Eric. Man, what a great conversation, man. <laughs> I mean, That's right. His love of his background, his family, the journey he's been on, his really strong voice and honesty, I, it just was yeah. impressive. But there's one thing yeah, that he made reference to about that TV show that none of us have seen and may never see about the political pressures of being the first black attorney general. And I was okay. really curious. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to ask it during the inter interview, but I was really curious about what exactly he was talking about. Okay, so this is the show that he made with our friend Sasha Penn that, that they made a pilot, but it didn't go to series. That's what you're talking yeah, yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of asked you, maybe you could talk to Sasha <laughs> and find out. <laughs> I talked to Sasha about it. You know, this is... This, you talked to him? Okay. This is CBS, you know, the Murder, She Wrote station. So they, didn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't pick <laughs> it up. Yeah, so the political pressures about being the first black attorney general. So the show was like working with these ideas that, you know, he had this staff that... Um, had been there through multiple administrations. Mm -hmm. And when they weren't supporting him, this, you know, this black AG has to worry, like, are they not supporting me because they disagree with my policies ah. or because I'm black? <laughs> <laughs> you mean like that? The same kind of stuff I have to deal with <laughs> when my students give me bad, yeah. bad marks. I'm like, is it? No, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it, it goes deeper. There isn't a Barack Obama character, meaning the president at that time is a white man who appointed him to the job. Oh, because they needed ratings. Has too much black for television. You can have either a black <laughs> president or a black attorney general. You can't have both. Maybe not because it didn't get picked up the series, but. <laughs> <laughs> when he's like investigating some malfeasance possibly by the president, again, there's this sort of racial tension. Uh. But I think where race maybe comes up the most is that there are all these threats on his life. Oh. And when Sasha was researching the show, he said that he talked to the person assigned to protect Eric Holder. And he was like, yeah, man, they came all the time. I, you know, he had not seen this many. Yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So uh, hence political yeah. pressures like to, to, to like shut up and dribble for the attorney general. <laughs> but, but, you know, maybe maybe most importantly, so that show didn't get picked up. But, you know. When Sasha is writing the show for us, you know, about some of my best friends are, we're going to get picked up to series. Oh, got it. Got it. Yes. Yeah, because nobody is trying to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the first thing is I think it won't be on CBS. It's going to be on cable. That's going to be the thing that gets us going. <laughs> you mean like the Tubi channel? No, may maybe hook us up. Maybe stars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. All right, man. Well, listen, uh, I love that Sasha got to be part of this episode. And of course, <laughs> love you, man. I love you, too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by John Asante and Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Jasmine Morris. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong, and our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, 
Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. got to be like the hardest thing that you all do. How do you oh, keep man. Khalil quiet for 15 seconds? He wasn't really quiet there. You could hear he was moving around. I mean, I like, like well, Khalil, don't say anything for 15 seconds. That's close to damn near impossible, right? <laughs> <laughs> the tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.